And Romans chapter 9 marks a major transition in the book of Romans. We've had several big shifts. We've had several uh, twists and turns of Paul's argument. But in chapter 9, th this is really the, the second major section. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 8 covered what I guess is Paul's main subject, which was that of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And chapter 1 through 8 went through the gospel in four movements, which we know as condemnation. Everyone is a sinner and destined for hell because of the wrath of God against sin. Number two, justification. We are saved, declared righteous by the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Number three, sanctification. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you to change your life and transform you to the image of Christ right now as you live. And number four, glorification. We look forward to the day when all of this will be consummated in the presence of the Lord. So that's the gospel, the good news. But in chapter 9, we're not going to stop talking about the gospel, but we're going to move to a different subject that is, of course, related to it. And this addresses, perhaps, Paul's main reason for writing, or, or at least the main application point that Paul wanted to get across. You'll remember from the very beginning of this book, Paul had not yet been to Rome. He'd been to many other cities, He'd been to the Galatian cities, he had been to Ephesus and Corinth, but he had not yet been to Rome. He was on his way back to Jerusalem to complete his third missionary journey, and he wanted to come back, and on his way he wanted to visit Rome before he went to Spain. So he writes this letter in a way to introduce himself. This will come up more at the end of the letter. Paul perhaps was trying to let them know who he was so that if they did see him, they wouldn't think he was just some teacher. This letter was written about 57 AD. And of course, Paul would be arrested when he got to Jerusalem and would make it to Rome, but he would only make it to Rome in chains. But that, of course, had not happened yet as he wrote this book. And as we know from Acts chapter 18, verse 2, and also from Roman history, the Jews in the late 40s AD, so about 10 to 15 years before this, the Jews had been driven out of Rome. Claudius Caesar ordered them out. And Susitonius, who's a Roman historian, said the Jews were expelled because of a dispute over a man named Crestus. Crestus is understood to be a misspelling of the word Christos, which is Jesus Christ, which means the Jews were disputing with each other and causing so much ruckus and trouble in Rome, Claudius kicked them all out. Y'all can come back when you can behave and you can get along with one another. So that is why Priscilla and Aquila, for example, had been kicked out of Rome, and that's why Paul met them. And at this time, by now, the Jews had been permitted to return, but what we will see as we go through Romans 9, 10, and 11, and what you will see more as you get to the end of the book, is that this probably would have been a bit of a tense situation. Because if all the Jewish Christians were driven out of Rome, only ones that are left are the Gentile Christians, and the church would continue. But if after more than a decade, all these Jewish Christians come back, and you know from the book of Acts how rapidly the church was changing at this point, if they were to come back in and try to assert themselves as the, the first and foremost because they were Jewish Christians, that would have been a, a bit of a tense thing. And regardless of whether or not that is the exact case here. This was a common problem the church faced everywhere. How are we to accommodate the Gentiles into God's church? And that is what Romans 9, 10, and 11 
are about. Chapters 1 through 8 are about the gospel. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are about Israel and their place in God's church and how they relate to one another. And that's what these next several weeks as we go through these chapters are going to be about. It's important for us to note, therefore, and this is going to be our first point as we read through these these verses, that when Paul discusses Israel in these verses, he's talking about ethnic national Israel. Let's read these five verses together and see if if you can catch what I mean when I say that. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul there says... This next subject that I want to address is my kinsmen according to the flesh. Those who are of the biological race of Abraham. This is important to note. God had told Abraham in Genesis 17, he said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So Paul writes about this group of people, the offspring according to the flesh, that God had promised to Abraham would be his people forever. Now you might say, why are you making such a big deal out of that? You read this verse and it seems so obvious. Because far too many people read the Bible and assume that the church has replaced Israel as God's people and that when you read Israel, you should just, in your mind, automatically say church. They assume that and therefore read the Bible and interpret the Bible with that swap in mind. But you need, as I very often say, to ask, what does it say, though? It says, my kinsmen according to the flesh. It is very simple interpretively to say, well, the church is the new Israel. That's real easy to remember. You can pound it in your head and and you never have to think about it again. But the problem is when you start using that simplistic approach, you get into chapters like Romans 9, 10, and 11 and others, and you run into all kinds of problems. Well, if that's true, then what about this passage here? What about when the Lord said, I've made an everlasting covenant with you? What about when the Lord said, the sun and the moon and the stars shall pass away before my covenant passes away? So the real answer to this question is more complicated on the upfront, as we're going to get to Romans 11.25, that the Lord has partially hardened the nation of Israel in order to bring the Gentiles in. But that makes your reading much simpler. You don't have to come to things and say that word actually means a different word. The simple text tells us Paul is speaking of his kinsmen according to the flesh. And in fact, that's what this whole section of scripture is about. The tension between Jews and Gentiles within the church. And that approach is remarkable because if you're going to say that the church is is the new Israel and Israel has nothing to do with it, then this chapter makes no sense. 
And in fact, this is the most detailed section of scripture about this subject. Because Paul has said throughout this book, salvation is apart from the law. Thank you, Lord. And by this time, most of the Jews had rejected Jesus as it is to this day. So what does that say about these people? We spent 39 books of the Bible reading about Israel and the Jews and the promises. And then we get to the New Testament and the historical books, the Gospels and Acts, present to us this great rift that opens up between God and Israel. And all these Gentiles flood in. So what does that say about God's covenant? What does that say about them? And if you know If you have your eyes open to see it, the New Testament talks about this all the time. Galatians talks about this a lot. Hebrews is all about this. Ephesians has large sections that address it. And of course, the book of Acts itself, wrestling with the problem of how do we bring these Gentiles into the new covenant? And then what does that say about the old covenant? But I would say the most detailed and important section of scripture to address this topic is Romans 9, 10, and 11. This has profound implications for ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. How do you understand what the church even is? And also eschatology, the doctrine of last things. What does that mean about the future of the church and the nation of Israel? Now, what happens is we read these passages and there's all these fiery verses about predestination and election. And we grab them and we extract the principles from them. And that is fine to do. But you must read them in context. Why would Paul go out of his way to make such strong statements about predestination and election? What you will see is in context, he's reminding us God has not given up his people. Because when God chooses somebody, he doesn't go back on it. So we will spend time as we go through these chapters talking about predestination and sovereign choice and free will and all of that. But we need to remember that they mostly in this section concern God's chosen people, Israel. But that is all still to come. What we see in these first five verses and where we're going to direct our focus today is that the main point that Paul is expressing here is his love for those people. Rather than casting off these people who had cast him off, we read through Acts, it was always the Jews stirring up trouble against Paul. He would go in the synagogues and preach the gospel, and then they would start a riot and run him out of town. But rather than saying, who needs him anyway, rather than consigning them to destruction, Paul in these verses pours out his heart for the very people who had rejected him. And it sets us a remarkable example, and that is what we will focus on today. Because we are living in days of division, days of strife. And we need to reclaim the Christian attitude of love for the lost. To recognize that our enemies are not truly enemies, they're lost. And we are the ones that have been sent out to find them and bring them back. One of the first things you ever learned that Jesus said from Luke chapter 6 is when Jesus said, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who abuse you. Yes, Lord, amen, hallelujah, Jesus. But then you have to do it. And we even can get indignant about it. You don't expect me to love them, him, her, that group of people. You can't expect, don't you know what they've done to me, to my family? Don't you know what they're doing to my country? 
True love for one's enemies is a rare thing. It is as radical today as it was when Jesus first said it. Love your enemies. He says, don't just love the people that love you. Even pagans do that. He says, love your enemies. And I will say, living in a time where love seems to be shriveling up for one another, it must be the church of Jesus Christ that will carry the fire on that one. Say, we are going to carry the love for the lost. We don't care if everyone despises us or tells us that we're not taking a stand like we ought to or that we're not calling out what, you know, problems when we see them. I would rather be known as people who love like Jesus loved because that's what the Lord is going to bless. God's not looking for hostile Christians. Don't you know that? One time Peter got hostile. What did Jesus have to say? Would you stop that? Put that sword away. And he went willingly to demonstrate remarkable love for his enemies, you and me. Amen? So let's look at this passage in a little more detail. Now that we've got an overview of this broad section of Scripture, let's look at this a little slower. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The first thing that we'll see today, Paul expresses his anguish for the lost. And we know that this is specifically referring to the Jews, but we can apply this out broader to anybody who has not yet found salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul told the Galatians, he said, I am in anguish over you like childbirth. That's how much I am agonizing over you. And you see in verse 1, he feels the need to affirm this very strongly. Verse 1, he doesn't even say what he's, what he's trying to assert. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I am heartbroken over my people. Why does he feel the need to say that? Because Paul had a reputation that was unwarranted, but he had a reputation for being an enemy to the Jewish people, particularly to the Jewish Christians. This chapter, Acts 21-21, will happen after the letter to the Romans has been written. But when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, who at that time was functioning as the pastor of the church there, said, there's a lot of Jews here, Jewish Christians, Paul, that do not like you very much. Because it says in Acts 21-21, they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Was that true? It was not. Paul never told Jewish people that they needed to stop being Jews. What he did say very strongly was you do not get to make Gentiles Jews in order to be saved. But you know how these things trickle down. And people in Jerusalem were hearing, I don't know about that Paul. He's always telling people they, they don't need to hold fast to our culture and to our way of life. In Corinth, he had shaken out his garments when the Jews had rejected him. He said, fine, then I'm going to the Gentiles from now on. Shaking out the garment was like saying, fine, I'm shaking the dust off of this place off of me and going to the people that don't even have the law of Moses. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he said, if you go after circumcision to be saved, you have been severed from Christ. He preached against salvation by the law. So you can understand why this was, was said, but it's not true. And yet, none of this, none of this preaching against the doctrine of salvation by works, 
None of this rejection of these Jewish people that were causing trouble and rejecting the gospel. None of that was done in bitterness. None of that was done with, it, with some kind of sick delight. Fine, now I can tell you what I really think about you. He didn't walk away from that place and get together with Silas and Timothy and just start ripping the Jews up and down. Can you imagine? I'm just so glad we're not even with these people anymore. Thank God for Jesus that I don't have to be around him. No, it broke Paul's heart. He watched Israel reject their Messiah. He watched them take all the hope of the old covenant in their hands and stomp on it. We have no king but Caesar, they said. He knew that their time was short. Jesus had said in Matthew 24, he looked to the temple and said, not one of these stones will remain standing upon another. He knew all of that. And he did not rub his hands together and say, finally, they're going to get what they deserve. It broke his heart. Christians, recognizing someone else's need for salvation ought to break our heart, not harden our heart. Too often we look at somebody and we see something they do or something they say, maybe even something they wear, and we see that they need Jesus. They are separated from Christ. They do not have salvation. And rather than getting broken for them, we get angry at them. How could they? How could they reject? How can you walk around talking like that? And we get angry and we get together as Christians and we talk about, can you believe what they're doing? Can you believe what he said? Can you believe what she did? And she thinks that she's going to go to heaven. Well, she's not. She's going to learn someday. That's not right. Consider how much the Jews hated the tax collectors. Now, listen, the tax collectors were bad people. You got to get this or none of it makes any sense. The tax collectors were not secretly good people that they just had a prejudice against. The tax collectors were collaborators with Rome. They were like Nazi collaborators in Germany that were helping the people that were there to keep them under their boot, taking money, robbing, stealing from them. They were bad people. They were great sinners. They were oppressors. And yet Jesus' following consisted of an awful lot of tax collectors. Because he was willing to be broken over those people, not just to get angry. He was willing to call Levi from his tax table to be his disciple. He sees him there, collecting the money. Maybe he had been out fishing with Simon Peter. This is like how I always picture this story. That they're standing in line to go to the tax table, and there go the boys complaining about taxes. Nothing new under the sun. We always complain about taxes. Now this guy, you know this guy, do you know what he did? He ripped me off and he charged me double and he built that house off the tax money he got from me. And there's Jesus watching this guy. And Jesus, of course, was wiser than all of us. And he saw that this man was, was stealing up, looking at Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. Maybe Jesus gets up there and says, I'll, I'll, I'll handle this, guys. I'll pay for it. And he's going through the process and Levi says something to him like, uh, you know, Rabbi, I've, I've heard some of the things you have to say and I must say that I, I really admire you and you know, you've, you've really made me think about a lot of things. And Jesus looks at him dead in the eyes and says, why don't you come follow me? Why don't you leave all this? Now? Yeah, now. Come on. And it says, Matthew got up, left his tax table, and followed Jesus. And he says, what do we do now? And Jesus said, how about you get a bunch of your friends over? You know, my friends are all tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And Jesus goes, Perfect. Was Jesus going to go out and party with the bad people? No. 
He knew they needed the love of God. He was willing to call Levi. He was willing to call any, any group of people you want to put out there. Matthew 9.36 says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. For they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What a perspective to have on those who are lost. Sinners are not your enemies. Ephesians 6.12 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Just because that person has become the mouthpiece for the voice of the devil does not mean that they themselves are your enemy. They're the ones that you've been sent to save. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. What did Jesus say? I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why do you spend time with tax collectors and sinners? He said, because those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. You need to cultivate an anguish for the lost, not rage against the lost. Rage for them. You want to get angry? You want to see somebody on TV doing some horrible thing? Don't get angry at them. Get angry on behalf of them. Look at this young man that Satan has so twisted around and made him a vehicle for his own wicked purposes. That's a soul that Jesus died and bled for. And you pause it and you get on your knees right there and begin to intercede for that man. Rage against them. Against the one that has corrupted them. So, who do you need to be agonizing for, anguishing for? Who makes you angry? What group of people makes you angry? And you feel so righteous in your anger against them. Maybe it's millennials. <laughs> I am one of those. <laughs> Won't get a job focused on video games and things that don't matter. And they're always putting down our, our great society and they don't know anything. And haven't they learned? And why won't they get up and work hard? And they need Jesus really bad. What about homosexuals? Do you get angry or does your heart break? Look at what they've done. Look at how they're dressing. Look at how they're, they're trying to normalize this wickedness. Don't they know how evil it is? Christian, they don't. And if they do, then that's even worse. They need Jesus. What about gangbangers? Look at them ruining the neighborhood. Can you believe they, they're shooting and killing people and they're bringing drugs to these kids. This is awful. They need to be stopped. They need to be put down. No, they need Jesus. Here's a tough one. What about those that are working in the pornography industry? Corrupting our society. Yeah, they are. But you know who's most corrupt? They are. They are. They need Jesus. They need somebody to love them and pray for them. And be willing to accept them. What about just good old-fashioned religious people that won't let the Holy Spirit move and won't let the gospel be preached? Jesus is done with these churches. He doesn't want anything. We need to just move on and forget them. Oh, is that how Jesus does it? Well, we've got 99 sheep. That's a pretty good percentage. That's still an A+. Is that how Jesus does it? No, his heart breaks. Jesus wrote letters to the churches and said, let me save you. I'm standing at the door and knocking. I don't want to remove your lampstand. That's the right attitude. Do we sometimes need to oppose these people and oppose the things they do even vigorously? Yes, but they're the ones we're there to save. They are the ones that we need to save first. 
There was a mission team that had been sent out by the Salvation Army back when the Salvation Army was going for salvation. <laughs> and they went to this one mission and it wasn't working. They were there for, I believe it was a year or even two years. And the two people wrote a letter to William Booth, who was the, the commander, right, of the, of the Salvation Army. And they said, it's not working. We'd like your permission to come home. We've tried everything. We've tried every program, every skill we know. And, and, and nobody's coming. We're asking your permission to come home. He sent them back a telegram with two words on it. Try tears. That's all he said. Try tears. Try praying until you're so heartbroken for this place that you weep when you think of them being lost. That's where we start. Anguish for the lost. For I could wish, verse 3, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Second, Paul insists on his willingness to sacrifice for the lost. Of course, meaning the Jews in this context. And in the strongest terms imaginable. He goes, if I could give up my salvation for all of my countrymen, I would. Now he knows he can't. But he says, if I could, I would. Paul, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, had a strong desire to preach to his own people. And he did get his chance, but when he did, they hated him for it. I mentioned in Acts 21 that James said, you know, a lot of these Jewish Christians aren't so sure about you, Paul. What he said was, why don't you go to the temple and some of them are, are paying off a Nazarite vow. Why don't you go with them? You pay for it. You offer the sacrifice just to kind of smooth things over. He gets there and Jews from Ephesus, I believe it was, recognized him. And they started a riot and Paul got the chance to preach the gospel and share his testimony. But when he said, and then God sent me to the Gentiles, Acts 22, it says, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. You know, I've had some people reject my messages, but nobody's ever thrown dust into the air. And later on, the next day, Jesus came to him and comforted him. He said, well done, Paul. He said, well done. No one got saved. Because even though he had failed in his preaching, he had been willing even to die. They were trying to tear him to pieces. The Roman guards had to come and pull him away. He had been willing to sacrifice even his life for his people. It's one thing to claim a desperate heart for the lost. It's another thing to lay down your life. You say, well, yeah, but Paul was an apostle. Right? He was supposed to preach. You're a preacher. I mean, that's your job. That's what we pay you for, Tyler. No, no, no. Remember what we said? The Son of Man has been sent to seek and to save that which is lost. In John 20, 21, as Jesus had risen from the dead, he said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I now send you. It means whatever Jesus was sent to do, you as a Christian are sent to do the same. That's what it means to be in Christ. Paul told the Corinthians, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Spend, meaning I'm willing to give up stuff for you. And be spent, I'm also willing to give up of myself. Some of us are really willing to spend for souls. We'll send money, we'll send resources, we'll use our, our influence to, to get things going. But the minute it starts to affect me directly, not interested, no thank you. 
Others of us are willing to be spent. I'm willing to go out and do the work. I'll knock on doors. I'll do whatever. But don't you dare ask me for a dime. Don't you dare ask to have that Bible study in my house. Don't you dare ask. But Paul says, I'm gladly willing to spend and be spent. That's sacrifice for the loss. What kind of sacrifices do we give up? Number one, it's a sacrifice of ease. You want an easy life? You shouldn't have become a Christian. I'm very sorry. Ease. I just want to be able to float through life, not worry about it. Listen, there are people dying and going to hell. Firemen don't have easy lives. When the, when the bell rings, you got to go. Ah, oh, but this is my me time, you know. It's, I just, I really think I'm putting too much effort into putting out these fires because I'm really not getting enough time to really do some self-care. And it's one of my least favorite words, by the way. It's a sacrifice of peace. If you want, you know, that, that, that's actual ease of life. But what about peace in, in your head and your heart? Now, there's the peace of God that passes all understanding, but there's also, as Paul says, my constant agony over the churches. You can't drive through a neighborhood knowing that those people are dying and going to hell and feel good about it if you're sacrificing for the lost. So listen, if I spend any more time thinking about the persecuted church, it's just going to really wind me up and I'm, I'll never stop crying. Yep, that's right. It's a sacrifice of time. Yeah, I'll be there, but how long is it going to take? These people are dying and going to hell. Yeah, I know, but, you know, I, I had a, pulled a long week this week. It will indeed be a sacrifice of funds. Paul was not afraid to go to those Corinthians and say, I'm trying to bridge the gap between Jews and Gentiles. And one of the ways I want to do it is we're going to take up a giant Gentile relief fund to pay for the poor that are struggling for the famine in Jerusalem. So let's go. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but you need to. It's a sacrifice of energy. I've known people, and usually in jest, it's great being a pastor, man. You just you work one day a week and you golf and watch football the rest of the time, right? There are a few things more exhausting emotionally and physically draining than being a herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You ever been on a missions trip before? You ever gone overseas and you're doing the work and it's like, oh man, 6.30, I'm ready for bed. Because it's exhausting. It's, it, you have to expend energy. To save a soul means not just to preach to the point of conversion, but to take that man and teach him, giving him everything he needs so that the gospel can take root and grow in his heart. When somebody says, yes, I'd like to pray to receive Jesus Christ, that's not the end. That's the beginning. And if you are the one that leads them to Jesus, you have a responsibility to take care of them and help them along. To do whatever it takes to enable them to reject their old life and follow Jesus. You know, so many people are willing to spend their whole lives chasing after frivolous little things. We ought to be willing to give them the way out when the time comes. Some of us have even been called to do this full time. So let me ask you, what about you? I know more people in the church that have been called a full-time ministry that sit on it and never do anything with it and then assume God has forgotten about it. No. You know, the pandemic had a lot of effects. One of the biggest ones is that not very many new missionaries are going out. A lot of the old ones are coming home. You know, there's, I'm not going to judge any man's servant, but I am going to say those people out there, COVID or no COVID, still need to hear about Jesus. So what about you? You want to spend your whole life in the lap of luxury? Or do you want to get out there and come into the kingdom of heaven exhausted? 
That's how I want to come into heaven, man. I want to come in, like if we're going to use the example of like knights in shining armor, some people are going to ride into heaven and it's going to be glistening and gleaming and the horse is trotting with its heels nice and high and <laughs> the feather is still in place. And I want to come into heaven just like dragging a broken leg and a banged up, you know, shield over here. And I don't know where my sword is. I lost it somewhere and the helmet's half off, but I've got a giant train of people coming in with me. That's, you want to come across the finish line. If you ever do any kind of running or kind of racing or anything like that, they say when you get across that finish line, you should have nothing left. Yeah. You should put it all out so that you cross that line and then fall over. I did a triathlon last year, and they had wheelchairs ready. <laughs> These people are all in great shape. Well, some of, some of them more than others, but, you know, self-deprecating humor there. But you come across the line, and <laughs> some of them are like, yeah, all right, and some of them get across, and... They're about to fall over and, you know, I finish and I kind of had my hands on my knees and they run up. You okay? You okay? Because that's what a race is. And if you're a Christian, don't you want to come into heaven exhausted to collapse across that line? I gave everything I had for these people that needed Jesus. And Jesus is our ultimate example. Did he hold anything back? He gave up his life so that we might live. Paul saying, I wish that I were accursed that they might live is exactly what Jesus did. He took the curse of the tree for us so that he could offer us salvation freely, which is why Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that we are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I call you today to despise the shame Despise the shame that comes from being a preacher of the gospel when nine out of every ten people are going to laugh in your face and mock you and send you away. To despise the shame of living in this day when religious people don't get any love unless they're willing to act just like people that don't believe. Calling you to endure the negative comments. To endure the meeting from your boss that tells you you've got to back off of this stuff. To despise the shame Say, how could I be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm going to heaven, and am I going to be ashamed because of these people that are lost and blind and don't even know what they're talking about? And to endure the cross. I hope none of us have to actually die on a physical cross. But your life, the pain and the suffering that it will take in order to win those souls, you must endure it. My father always would say, I'm not afraid to ask you to take a step of faith. If I feel like the Lord is calling us out and it's going to hurt, I'm not afraid to say, let's go. I'm not afraid to send out missionaries to a place where I know they might be killed. I'm not afraid to ask us to put the word of the Lord out there, even if we're going to be loved by exactly nobody, because we're looking forward to the joy to come. Now, Christ will never call you to lose your own salvation, as Paul said in verse 3, but everything else is on the table. Everything else, even your life. Because what is your life? It's that fast and then it's over. It's not about how long your race is, it's about how you finish it. Amen? Sacrifice for the lost. Number three, verses four and five. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The third thing Paul explains is his love for the lost. Seeing their worth the way God sees it. 
he anguishes over the lost. He's willing to sacrifice for the lost. And you say, why? And he explains here his love for them. He gives a great long list of the benefits of being a member of the house of Israel. That God adopted them as children when they were slaves in Egypt. How he made them a glorious nation. He made covenants with them. Covenants with Abraham and Moses and David and Zadok and others. He gave them his law. We've been reading through that on Wednesday night, studying it. He taught them to worship. Is there anything more valuable than knowing who the real God is? God gave them that. He made promises to them of land and blessing. Their forefathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What a wonderful thing. Clearly, there are benefits to being a Jew, even after the cross. As Paul said in Romans chapter 3, he says, Therefore, what advantage has the Jew? He says, much in many ways. Ephesians 2 verse 12, speaking to the Gentiles, said, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the Jew and the Gentile were not on equal footing when it came to the things of God. But what is key to see here is that Paul is listing everything that is redeemable and regrettable about his people. He's listing all the good things. Rather than listing out all their flaws and their failures, he could have listed out everything that Israel did wrong. Every time they broke the covenant, every time they were exiled, all the horrible things they said about Jesus, the stoning of Stephen, driving the Hellenistic Christians out of Jerusalem. But instead, he lists all these wonderful things. And that's the important thing to see here is his love for them. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, Love hopes all things. Love doesn't look at a broken person and say, I don't know if there's anything that can be done for them. Love looks at that person and hopes. I know what God can do through that life, as broken as it is. And namely, of course, that every sinner can be brought to salvation. There is no one beyond God's reach. And we say, oh yes, of course. But what about those people that make you so angry? And all you ever pray about is, Lord, stop them. Lord, put an end to them. You think they can be saved? We anguish for the lost. We sacrifice for the lost. But why? Because we are to love the lost. As Christ loved the lost. God is able to look at a person and see what they might be if his Holy Spirit filled them up, regenerated them, forgave their sins, and set them on a new trajectory in life. That's love hoping all things. Redeemed by grace. Consider Simon Peter. Simon was a bit of a hothead, was he not? He, he was a little arrogant. Jesus wanted to preach in his boat, and then Jesus wanted to go fishing. He goes, look, it's daytime. You don't fish in the daytime. And in fact, we fished all night, and we didn't catch anything. So if we didn't catch anything at night, we're definitely not catch any, catching anything during the day. But you know what? Fine, sure. Yeah, you want, at your word, Lord. Yep, we'll go. Tourist. <laughs> Doesn't know anything. And then he looks at Jesus. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Jesus, Peter uh, was the one on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said he did not know what to say, so he said, let's stay here and build three tabernacles. You know, some people, they don't know what to say, you know, shut up. Simon Peter was not that guy. Simon Peter denied Jesus three times. But you know what Jesus did? He had already given him his destiny beforehand. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Because what did Jesus see in Peter? Jesus saw the kind of man he could use to establish his church. 
He saw the kind of man who was stubborn. And Jesus goes, man, my apostles are going to have to be stubborn. They're going to face the worst persecution that will ever be known. They've got to be prepared to stand. Now, Peter was aggressive. Peter was hot-headed and forward-thinking. And Jesus goes, good. I'm going to need missionaries. Need people willing to step out and try things. He was willing to step out of the boat, and then he sank. He goes, that's okay. If I can teach him to keep his eyes on me, he'll walk on the water. That's why he chose Simon Peter. What about Saul of Tarsus? Saul, who is Paul, saw the stoning of Stephen and said he approved of it. This horrible stoning of a godly, miracle-working man, and Paul approved of it. And then he went to the leaders and said, you know what? Some of them are hiding in Damascus. Let me go get them. I'll bring them back and we'll stone some more. And they sent him out. You got to know the church was praying for Paul. But not, oh, Lord, please save Saul of Tarsus. Strike him down, Lord. They were finding those imprecatory psalms. Break the teeth in his mouth. Just take the wicked and drive him away that all may know. And God goes, well, look at this guy. He's, he's zealous. He's fiery. I like that about him. And you know, he loves my word. He doesn't quite understand the, the, the focus of it, but he loves to read it and study it. And he's a really sharp guy. And, and when he believes something, he takes action and goes for it. He's willing to go beyond what everybody else does. I need a guy like that. Maybe his angel said, Lord, he's not going to believe unless you were to like knock him off his horse and shine a light in his face. And God goes, that's a wonderful idea. Pow! Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now go to the city. Jesus didn't give Paul an altar call. He just said, now go to the city. You're mine now. And he prayed for three days until Ananias was sent to him. And it says none of the other Christians wanted anything to do with him. He went back to Jerusalem and they said, get out of here. We don't want you here. They thought he was a spy. He had to live in obscurity for 14 years in Tarsus, making tents. He had to go home and tell his parents, I gave up everything you sacrificed so that I could have this apprenticeship with Gamaliel and work in the city of Jerusalem because the Messiah came and his name is Jesus. You're out of your mind, Paul. At least you know how to sew. You can make tents. But Jesus knew who Paul could be. What about John the evangelist? You read the letters of John. What does he say every, every five words? Beloved. My Dear little children, very, very grandfatherly letters, right? His nickname with Jesus was Boanerges, which means the son of thunder. The Samaritans wouldn't give Jesus a hotel room. And they said, shall we call down fire from heaven, O Lord? And Jesus goes, no, <laughs> we will not. Think, Man, this guy's he, he was ready to, to kill people. He wanted people to be smoked up and, and, and die because they wouldn't, wouldn't welcome him which means he was probably wildly racist because he didn't want those Samaritans to live. He never said that for any Jewish people or even any Gentiles, but the people I don't like, let's set them on fire, Lord Jesus. He was the one that watched Jesus go through his trial and watched him die on the cross, but he said nothing. But Jesus goes, I love his fire. Can you imagine what I could do if I sanctified that fire and aimed it in the right direction? Man, what could that man be? He could be the only apostle that was never martyred and established the early church. There's a story from Eusebius Church history that I love where John 
was at a church, I believe it might have been in Ephesus, I'm not sure, don't quote me on that, but he saw a young man come into the church and he, he really liked him, he thought he was a good guy and that God could use him in a great way. So he told the pastor, watch out for this guy, kind of pay some attention to him, disciple him and all that. John moves on. When he comes back, that young man had left the church and had joined and become the leader of a band of robbers. And the pastor said to him, he's lost, there's nothing we can do. And it says that John berated the man for letting him go. And then what did the, the ancient now son of thunder do? He saddled up, went to their headquarters and said, I want to talk to him, where is he? Said, don't you know who we are, man? That guy will kill you. I don't care, I want to talk to him. And when that man heard, there's some guy that said his name is John. This hard-bitten gangster criminal ran because he didn't want to face John. And it says in, in church history, John ran after him, shouting him that if you will only repent, you can be forgiven. And that guy fell on his knees and repented and was restored to the church. Only a son of thunder would be willing to chase down a gangster, <laughs> shouting at him to repent. 80-year-old man doing that. This is the kind of love we have for the lost. You don't look at them and see where they're stuck. You see where they could be if God got a hold of them. It's like the love of a mother. Well, he's a good boy, really. No, he's not. <laughs> but mama looks at him with those eyes of love, right? But I know, I know, I've seen that in him. Or have you ever known somebody that's in a relationship with a, a bad guy or a bad girl? So you, you really, you got to move on. You can't stay with her. Yeah, but you haven't seen what she's like when, when we're alone and she's real sweet to me. And we're like, well, she needs to do that more often and not just when you're, you know, alone and in the secret. But it's like, what does that love see? That love is able to see the little glimmers of what could be. And that's what they love about that person. And that's what they hold on to. And that's what Jesus has done for you. Whatever we see externally in a person's life, God can redeem the lowliest sinner and make them shine. Oh, I feel so bad for the lost and I'm willing to do what it takes, but I just don't know if I can love these people. You've got to let Jesus show you. God loves everybody, which means God knows what is lovable about every person. So you've got to let him show you. He loves you. He loved you when you weren't lovable. He loved you when you were still a sinner and demonstrated it by sending his son to die on the cross for you. You've got to ask. You've got to get on your knees and pray. Lord, I don't love these people. I don't love this race. I don't love this political party. I don't love this nation. I don't love that family. But I know you do. So you've got to show me what's worth loving in those people. Jesus said in John 4, 35, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. That phrase came when he had spoken to the woman at the well in Samaria. And she was bringing out all of these guys, because none of the girls wanted anything to do with her, to come out and see Jesus. And the disciples wanted nothing to do with these people. He says, you're looking for the harvest, but it's right there in front of you, but you can't see it because your eyes are blinded because you lack love. But if you can look with the love of Jesus Christ, you can see that there's people everywhere that could be saved. Of every tribe and tongue and language. Let Jesus give you a sanctified perspective on the lost. And I will say that if you spend 100 hours in prayer for somebody, 1,000 hours in prayer for somebody, you're going to find it really hard to hate them. 
pray for them. Pray that God would bless them. Pray that God would show them favor. Pray that God would bring them to salvation. And don't pray that God will save them because you have a secret, sick desire to see them humbled. They need Jesus, Lord, so you better break them in front of everybody. You better show them that they're nothing because they are nothing, Lord. And they think they're so great. Break them down. What, what if the Lord decides not to break them down, but just to save them? Love, Christian. Love for the lost. Paul agonized over his people. He was willing to sacrifice whatever was necessary to save them because he loved them. Even in their rejection of the Messiah, he saw what was worth loving and worth redeeming. And in fact, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are going to be all about how God will one day redeem the nation of Israel. But that is true of every nation. And I want to draw our attention as we come to a close here, what we see in verse 5. He says, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, underline this, will you, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Let me remind you of our simple message to the lost. What are we bringing? What do we want to see worked out in those that do not know Christ? Our message is Jesus, only and ever Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was a smart guy. We've been reading through Romans. You know he was. He knew the poets. He knew the philosophers. He knew the traditions. He knew the scriptures. But he said, I have one thing, one string on my guitar, and that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. In verse 5 of chapter 9, he refers to Christ as God over all. This is a Greek construction that can only be translated this way. In 2 Corinthians 11.31, you have another similar phrase referring to the Father by saying, He who is God. In that case, referring to the Father. In this case, he uses the exact same phrase, He who is God over all, blessed forever, to Christ. He is explicitly calling Jesus God over all. You also see this in places like Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1 where he calls God, or he calls Jesus our God and Savior. That's that famous Granville Sharp rule. If anybody ever told you that the New Testament writers did not believe that Jesus was God, they're wrong. They knew he was God. They wrote as if he was God. They called him God. In fact, there's a very strong case to be made that in every time they referred to Jesus as Lord, that ought to be understood as the Tetragrammaton, the Yahweh, the Lord in all capitals of the Old Testament. Jesus is not just our friend and our Savior. He is God, very God. As demonstrated by his resurrection above everything else. He said, I and the Father are one. And that is our message. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So when I preach, my message is Jesus Christ is Lord, not me. Well, then what about me? You are a servant to Jesus, yes, but also to the people you're serving, the people you're there to preach to. My job as a preacher is to serve you, not to lord myself above you and hope that you guys will raise me up to some status or position who cares about any of that? We do not have a social gospel. Jesus can redeem society. That's not the gospel. 
It's not a personal gospel. Jesus can give you a better life. That's not the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, dead on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and risen again in glory on the third day. That's our message. And if that message is properly taught and properly understood, it will transform lives and it will transform society. But those things are secondary. The message is that God has intervened in history, sent his only son to die on the cross, and that everyone who believes on his name will be saved and gain eternal life. Nothing else can save Israel. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 39, your house is left to you desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it can't save anyone else. Acts 4.12 tells us there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. We proclaim him alone. And he is our ultimate example, isn't he? Jesus Christ agonizes for the lost. And so shouldn't we, the ones who are the beneficiaries of his anguish and his sacrifice and his love, maybe you need to repent today. You say, I have not been anguished or loving the lost. All I want is to see them put down and to see us raised up. Maybe you need to commit to prayer. I know I should. I just don't know how. Get on your knees. And I'm not talking, I well, I prayed for 10 minutes. No. Commit to a long time, years of prayer for the lost. Pray, God, break my heart because I know your heart's broken. And some of you need to just step out in faith. You do care. It eats you up. You don't know what to do. You've got to get out there and tell somebody. I don't know what to say. I just told you. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and rose again on the third day. If you believe in his name, you'll be saved. That's all. That's the gospel. That's the message. It's that simple. Those kids next door can understand that. Most of us were saved as little kids, weren't we? At least I was. Because it's not complicated. In fact, you must become like a little child if you want to believe. You want to come at it with all this intelligence and all this experience, and I need a gospel that's really going to meet me where I am. Jesus has nothing to say to you. Until you're willing to come to him in desperation and in your destitution, you will never find it. But we are the heralds of that message. I pray that we will always and ever be a place where the love of the lost is is to be found. That everybody who walks through that door, if they say nothing else, they say, well, those people really seemed to love me. They cared. They wanted to talk to me. It was a short encounter, but in that short encounter, I felt love for somebody they never even knew. May we never be a church that is known and defined by our hatred for and opposition to other people. What a tragedy. I don't want to be known as the anti-anything church. And we're anti-plenty of stuff. But all I want to be known for is love for the lost. Yeah, we do work with the pregnancy center because we love those mothers and fathers and those little babies. We don't hate them. Otherwise, why would we bother? Yes, we do work in the prisons and the jails. Not because we hate society or we hate those prisoners, but because we love them with all our hearts. And we know that no one else is going to them. They need to hear Jesus. We do work in the schools, not because we hate the system and we want to bring it down and fix it, but because we love those families and those kids and those teachers and administrators. And we even love those activists that want to come in and make weird changes. We love the lost. Our hearts break for the lost. I don't care if we go to war. We love that nation and we get on our knees and pray for those to be saved. I don't care if we personally are opposed. 
I don't care if there's 10,000 protesters out in that parking lot one day. You know what we're going to do? We're going to make them coffee, we're going to pray for them, and we're going to come back in and we're going to have service. We're not going to get all fired up, and we're not going to try and get something known about us. We're just going to love the lost. But it's, it's hard to do it then. It's easy to do it now. Learn to love those wayward people. Learn to love those that are leading others astray. They're blind guides. They don't know anything. They need the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus told us, love your enemies. That's all that I have to say today, is love your enemies, because they're not God's enemies.